Well, we're going to do God's Word together this morning. You ready? All right. Would you take your Bible then and turn with me into the Old Testament, last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, right? Famous Italian prophet of the Old Testament. Actually, it's Malachi, Malachi chapter 4. And, and if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We keep some in the back just for that purpose. There's also a, a note page in your bulletin. It looks like this. Grab that because that may be helpful to you along the way as well. And church family, today we bring to a close our study series on the life of Elijah, one of the Old Testament's most remarkable and really memorable characters. By means of him and his amazing exploits as God's prophet to ancient Israel, in a time of great spiritual darkness, we have gotten over the course of the last 10 weeks, today is week number 10, last week, We have gotten to know not only Elijah much, much better, but more importantly, we have gotten to know our God better. How faithful and kind and long-suffering and patient and purposeful and powerful he is as we have journeyed with the Lord through the life of Elijah. Now, last time we joined Elijah in one of the Bible's most extraordinary moments, when that moment when he became only the second person in the history of the world Enoch was the first, only the second person ever who did not die, but went straight from earth to heaven. And by nothing less than a whirlwind escort of angelic beings and fiery horse-drawn chariots. Were you here last week for that? Yeah. <laughs> and in that moment, we passed, he, he passed the mantle of his prophetic office onto his beloved companion, Elisha, who will himself go on to have an incredible tour of service uh, as God's prophetic voice in Israel after Elijah has gone. As we watched Elijah depart, we were given a fresh reminder last time of, of what death for every believer in the Lord Jesus really is. We talked about this last time. It's just an exchange of worlds, isn't it, for those who are in Jesus by faith. Just an exchange of worlds, just a change of address for us from earth to the very presence of the Lord, finally to be with him forever and ever at home with him. That's, that's the promise that Jesus gives us. I hope you know Jesus today in a personal relationship. Do you? Yeah. All right. I have to share this, this cute little story. It came to me this week, shared with me by one of the Awana workers as we're talking about heaven and thinking about such things in this moment. The cubbies uh, in in our Awana ministry are the preschoolers. They're the two, three, and four-year-olds. And two Wednesday nights ago, their teacher was talking with the kids about heaven and had brought a storybook with lots of pictures to help explain what heaven is like. Now, now that's a challenging topic for adults, right? So these are three-year-old kids. But the teacher must have done a fantastic job because when she was finished, one of the little guys raises his hand and says, Miss Connie, let's pray that we die right now so we can go to heaven. (laughs) And I know Connie wasn't ready for that. That wasn't really the thought that we would die right now. But man, right out of the heart of a child, let's go to heaven now. What are we waiting for, right? So we we waved goodbye to Elijah last time and and said, man, what a way to go. What a way to go, Elijah. However, if you were with us last time, you may recall that I mentioned more than once that even though we saw Elijah whisked off to heaven 
by an angelic, fiery escort. His story is really not over yet. We said, we'll see you again, Elijah. So how is it that having shared in Elijah's exit from this world, we can say that? We'll see you again, Elijah. How can we say that? Well, the reason we can say that is because both in name and in person, Elijah shows up repeatedly in the New Testament. No less than 38 times his name will appear in the New Testament, more times actually than any other Old Testament prophet. And if we really want to complete his life story fully and properly, well, we want to follow him into the New Testament and see not only him, but also see more of the faithfulness of God and his promises that are worked out through Elijah's life. We've been singing about the promises of God and his faithfulness, and we get to see that this morning through Elijah and his ongoing story into the New Testament. So now your Bible is open to Malachi 4 in the Old Testament, right? Are you with me there? I will just tell you now, we're going to be change, uh, kind of be moving all around in the New Testament. So uh, get those Bible pages kind of loosened up. The last book in the Old Testament, and we want the last two verses. The last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi is God's prophet, his mouthpiece to Israel, some 400 years after Elijah's spectacular ride to glory and 400 years before Jesus enters the world in Bethlehem. So he sits right in the middle of these two epic moments. The book of Malachi is a strong four-chapter challenge by God to his people Israel to turn back to him because their hearts have grown cold towards him and they have neglected him. It's really a head-on confrontation by God against the spiritual leaders in Israel at this time who are just horrible, hypocritical, self-serving imposters. Malachi's mission is to call the nation back to repentance, to turn from its evil and worship Yahweh Elohim rightly. That's what the four chapters of the book are about. The book is loaded with warnings of impending judgment if Israel refuses to listen and get her spiritual life back in order. So knowing this about the book, maybe it's not all that surprising that we would find Elijah's name in this book. After all, was that not his role for his earthly, his earthly ministry as a prophet, challenging the sin of his nation, calling her back to the Lord? I mean, that was uh, Elijah's job description. So God, through Malachi, closes out his message to his people in the Old Testament with these words. Last two verses of chapter 4. Verse 5 reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. (laughs) End of the Old Testament. Not exactly the cheeriest closer that you've ever read, right? In that last verse. In fact, just as a kind of a sidebar FYI, today when Orthodox Jews read the book of Malachi and they come to the end of that chapter and verse 6, they automatically go back and they reread verse 5 because they don't want to end on the word destruction. They don't want to end on the word curse if, if that's the word that's in your Bible. And so they go back and they read, Behold, I will send you 
Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And they end that way. Now, let me warn you, church family, right up front, that verses 5 and 6 are two of the most difficult verses that we can lay hold of in the Old Testament. I have been in a wrestling match with these two verses for quite a while. You see, there's more than one way to, to look at Malachi's prophecy. Some think that, it, that, that, that it's God's word and he's saying, literally, I'm going to send back Elijah to the earth in the future for one last great mission. So some understand it that way. Literally, Elijah's coming back. Others say, no, Malachi's prophecy is figurative. It's, it's not literal, and it is foretelling the coming of John the Baptist who appears right before Jesus at his first coming. Or maybe it's a combination of the two. And I have been wrestling with this for a little while. So let me invite you this morning to wrestle with me. Are you game? Let's all wrestle with it together. Let's leave Malachi now. Let's jump into the New Testament. And if you'll make your way to Luke's gospel, we'll start there. Luke's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go to Luke chapter 1, if you would. And as I invite you to this place, here an angel is sent from God. His name is Gabriel. This is part of the kind of the Christmas story that we're familiar with. And Gabriel is delivering a message from God to a childless couple. Elizabeth and Zacharias, telling them that they will soon have a son and his name is to be John. Verse 15, chapter 1 of Luke. For he, John, says the angel, will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him, that is before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of who? Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Does that sound familiar? Malachi, right? And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Very clearly here, John the baptizer, that's his, that's his literal name, the literal way we would say his name, will have, according to the angel's message, at least a figurative tie or connection to the Old Testament figure of Elijah. We know that John comes out of the wilderness, just like Elijah did. John wears a hairy coat and belt, just like Elijah did. And John preached repentance, and he preached judgment, just like Elijah did, calling the people back to the Lord. And if we keep in mind that the Malachi 4 prophecy was taught by the rabbis of the day to be taken literally. Elijah the prophet literally will return. Well, it's no surprise that many would conclude as they looked at John the Baptist, as he was doing his thing, they would look at him and conclude, that's who? That's Elijah. That's Elijah, the forerunner sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, just like Malachi had prophesied. Elijah has come back, many might have thought. But before we draw that conclusion, let's leave Luke and let's go right just a little bit into the next book, the book of John, and find chapter 1 of John's gospel. I told you we'd be turning pages, so it's great to hear them turning. 
So John the baptizer, well, at this point, he is attracting a lot of attention, uh, preaching his message of repentance and and turning to the Lord and calling his nation back. And, and the religious leaders are sent, some religious leaders are sent from Jerusalem out to investigate John and his ministry. Verse 19, John chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John. This is the reply that John gave when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In other words, I'm not the anointed one. I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah who will come before the Messiah? Are you Elijah? And he said, what? I am not. I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. We'll stop right there. So from John's own lips comes a a very clear denial that he is literally Elijah. Come back from heaven to the earth for a specific job, role, task. He says, "I'm I'm not him. Now, to make things just a little bit more challenging for us, Turn back to the left and make your way to Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 11. Find that place, would you? And when you get there, find verse 11. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd in this moment, and he's talking about John the Baptist. And here's what he says, verse 11, chapter 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is who? He is Elijah who is to come. Hmm. John says... I'm not Elijah. Jesus says he is Elijah. John says, I'm not Elijah literally. I'm not him. Jesus says, but John is Elijah figuratively coming just as the angel had announced in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare a people for the Messiah's arrival. Now, is that a little confusing? That's a little bit confusing. That's why we're wrestling together. In chapter 14, just a few chapters from now, we learn that John the Baptist is executed by Herod, the, Herod, the, the ruler of Judah at this time. And when Jesus hears about the death of John, he is deeply grieved. According to Jesus, Elijah has come figuratively and he has been rejected by Israel and he's been killed. And that makes Jesus' heart very heavy. But the story does not end there for sure. If you flip your note page over and then turn a few pages more to the right in your Bible, there in Matthew, find chapter 17. Things get really cooking now. This is one of the most incredible moments in Jesus or Elijah's story. Verse 1, John seven, or, or Matthew 17. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. <laughs> this is so vintage, Peter. I, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You can all just camp out right up here on the mountain. I'll, I'll take care of you. That's Peter. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is God speaking, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Let's just stop right there for a moment. Can you paint the picture in your mind? Or use the picture on the wall? What an incredible moment. Peter, James, John, and Jesus. Those three, the inner circle of of Jesus' disciples. Those three guys are going to be forever changed by what they see and hear in this moment. Jesus permits them to see him in his glory, his majesty, the glory and majesty he has as the exalted king of kings and the Lord of lords, the son of God. They get to see what the angels in heaven see Jesus as, transformed before them. His face shines like a thousand suns. His clothes, which are, 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 are... or, or just the normal hun, homespun, common fabric of the day. They take on a radiance that, that no weaver could ever produce. And the disciples, if they did not know it before, boy, they know beyond any doubt now, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are God's promised Redeemer. And Jesus is joined by Moses and Elijah, two of the most revered and respected figures in all of Jewish history. Verse 3 tells us that they talked with Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what they talked about, but in the parallel account of this scene that we get in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, we're told that, that Elijah and Moses talked with Jesus about his approaching death. The subject was his departure from the earth by way of the cross and the resurrection. That's what they are discussing together. What an incredible honor this was for two mortal figures, Moses and Elijah, to be able to talk with Jesus about his work of redemption. It's an incredible honor. But why these two? Of all the Old Testament figures, why Elijah and why Moses? Why not somebody else? Why not an angel or angels for some? Why these two? And that is such a great question. You, you, you were on top of it and you asked it. Let's see if we can answer that. It is virtually impossible, church family, to exaggerate the reverence and the respect that the Jewish people had for these two men in, in, in John and, and Peter and James's day. In fact, impossible for us to really grasp how much reverence and respect these two men receive even up to the present time. Moses was the giver of God's law, and Elijah was viewed as the father of the prophets. 
Moses was looked at as the great leader under whom Israel went from being an enslaved mob in Egypt to being a nation in its own right, a defined people. Moses was the one who led them to that place, and so no doubt he would be revered. And Elijah, he's the one whose role it was to to call Israel back to her God, and prophetically in Malachi, he's the one who paves the way for the Messiah's coming. The honor extended to him among the Jews uh, is remarkable even to this day. For example, Jewish baby boys, when circumcised on the eighth day, have their grandfather present at that ceremony. And he sits in a special chair. Do you know what the chair is called? The chair of Elijah. So at the circumcision of every Jewish boy, Elijah's name comes up. He's revered. On every Sabbath. So this would have happened last night in a Jewish synagogue. On Saturday night, this would have happened as the service concluded. Uh, at a point in that service called the Havdalah, in which the people sing, they sing hymns about God sending Elijah during the coming week. It's a song, God send Elijah, because we know that if Elijah comes, who comes soon after that? Messiah. So send Elijah. Happens every Saturday night in a Jewish synagogue. In fulfillment, they're praying, they're hoping Malachi 4, 5, and 6 will actually come to pass. The most striking reverence that, that is paid to Elijah right up today is at every Passover celebration, and that's about to happen again very soon. An empty chair is placed, if you've ever shared in a Passover Seder, uh, an empty chair is placed for him at the family table. There's a plate put at the table with a cup of wine, And at a fixed moment in that observance, one of the the children is dismissed to go to the door and and check and see if the great prophet has come, if he's arrived to join the family for the Passover. Again, the practice keeps in mind everybody's uh, awareness of Malachi's prophecy. If Elijah shows up at the Passover, then who can't be very far behind? Jesus or, or, well, the Messiah. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, so they're not looking for Jesus in this moment. They're looking for their Messiah to show up. But Elijah has to come first. Well, when Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah, two of their most revered ancestors, paying respect and reverence to Jesus, it provides, if as if they needed it, the final confirmation, Jesus, you surely are the Messiah. Verse 5 again. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son whom, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. With those words, we know that clearly on Jesus' mind is the conversation that he has just had with Moses and Elijah about his approaching death. That's what he's thinking about. Verse 10. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes, why do our teachers say that first Elijah must come? 
He must come first. He answered, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, did you just follow that little exchange? (laughs) The disciples understand Malachi 4, 5, and 6 to be literal. They say to Jesus, doesn't Elijah have to come first before Messiah comes, according to the prophecy? And Jesus says, that's true. And the disciples say, but you're here. You're here now. You are the Messiah. And yet Elijah sure didn't come before you. We've just seen him. And he's not done any of those things written about him in Malachi. Peter, James, and John, they're just just—they're really working hard to try to, to make sense of, of these things they've been taught all their lives. Verse 11, one more time. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. What tense is that? That's future tense, isn't it? That's future tense. Note carefully, he does come and will restore. Well, that has to do with the future. His literal appearance is the only thing that Jesus could be referring to here. He's agreeing with his disciples. There's still an unfulfilled literal aspect to Malachi 4. Elijah will come and he will restore just as you understand it, guys. That's going to happen. But, says Jesus, Malachi's prophecy is also figurative. Verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And who was that figuratively? That was John the Baptist. The disciples understand it. Jesus is telling his three followers and us that that Malachi's prophecy has a near fulfillment in John and a yet future fulfillment in the person of, say it, Elijah. One in the spirit and power of Elijah and the other in the powerful person of Elijah. One prophecy with both a near and a far fulfillment. Are you with me? You haven't lost, we haven't lost you, right? You're on, you're with me. Okay. This, 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 this idea of a near and far fulfillment of a prophetic word in scripture is really not an uncommon thing. It, it, we see it frequently, so we're not real surprised. What we want to make sure that we don't miss is what Jesus says here. And that is that Elijah is coming again. And he will play a role in helping to turn the hearts of God's people back to the Lord. He will help them see that, in fact, Jesus is their Messiah. Now, before we take a look at that yet future appearing of Elijah, you may recall, if you were with us last time, that I I purposely skipped over a moment in Elijah's life story uh, when we were in 2 Kings, and I said, we're going to talk about that this week. You remember that moment? I skipped over 2 Kings chapter 1. And and when you signed on for this series with me, you signed on, you paid for a full admission ticket with all of the rides, right? And so I would hate for you to leave feeling like you didn't get everything you paid for. So I don't want to not talk about that moment that I said we would come back to out of 2 Kings. 
On your note page, this comes under the heading of Elijah and the disciples. So are you still with me? Okay. For time's sake, here's the Cliff Notes version of 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, the moment that I skipped over last time. A wicked king who is ruling Israel in the days of Elijah, his name is Ahaziah, suffers an accident that leaves him with potentially fatal injuries. He wants to consult the false god Baal in hopes of being healed. God tells Elijah to go meet the king's officials and say to them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to go out and inquire of Baal, a false god? Is it because I don't exist? Ahaziah, hear the Lord. You will not recover from your injuries. You are surely going to die. Well, when Ahaziah gets that word, he is furious with Elijah for giving him such bad news. Even though Elijah was just the messenger for God, just a mouthpiece, it wasn't his message. And so Ahaziah wants to take Elijah out. And so he sends 50 of his best soldiers to go get him. They find Elijah sitting on a hill. They order him to come with them. And uh, their intentions are to do Elijah harm. God protects his prophet from them by enabling Elijah to call down fire from heaven. And they are all killed. Instantly, they're burned up. It's not a pretty picture. Ahaziah sends a second group of 50 soldiers. And the same thing happens to them. He sends a third group. And Ahaziah is a slow learner. You've got to figure that much. However, the captain of this third contingent, he's not a slow learner. <laughs> he finds Elijah. He begs for his life. He begs for the life of his fellow soldiers. The Lord sees the man's humility and releases Elijah to go with them. So Elijah then comes to King, King Ahaziah, delivers the same message. You forsake the true God for false gods. Your injuries are fatal. You're going to die. And Ahaziah does. His reign doesn't even last for two years. Now, it's important that we know about this moment in Elijah's life because it actually finds its way into the New Testament two times and folds into what we have already been looking at and thinking about. You're currently sitting in Matthew's Gospel. Can I ask you to make your way back to Luke one more time uh, and, and find Luke chapter 9? Let's hear the pages turn, Luke chapter 9. Now in verses 28 to 36, Luke presents that incredible transfiguration scene that we just shared with Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah out of Matthew 17. Now Jesus is making his way from there to Jerusalem where he knows the cross is waiting for him. To get there, he's going to have to pass through Samaria a region populated by Jews who had intermingled in marriage to Gentiles. And, and not, who are, so they're not, they're not pure Jewish persons. True Jews despise the Samaritans because they're half Jews. The, the Samaritans had set up their own rival religion to Judaism, complete with a temple to God. And so a true Jew avoids Samaria at all costs. Jesus was never caught up in such petty prejudices. And so he travels through Samaria and he intends to spend the night in a Samaritan village. But when the villagers learn that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and not to their temple, well, they get ticked off and they won't let him stay in the village. So you're with me? Chapter 9, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, these two guys were on the mountain, remember that? 
they saw this and they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? In other words, Jesus, do you want us to toast this village? They had just seen Elijah in person. His whole life, they knew so well. And so it's fresh in their minds what Elijah had done. Verse 55, but Jesus turned and he rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to do what? To save them. And they went to another village. Jesus' zealous disciples are passionate for him, but their hearts are all wrong in this moment. This isn't my heart, Jesus says. They misapplied uh, Elijah's life-threatening circumstance in 2 Kings to their situation, which wasn't at all the same. I mean, they're just offended because the, the Samaritan villagers had snubbed them. It's a very different situation. Jesus reminds them that his purpose is to save sinners, not destroy them. His kingdom rests on a foundation of mercy and grace and forgiveness. The Samaritans didn't need the fire of judgment. They really needed desperately the gospel of grace, didn't they? They needed Jesus. And I wonder, as we think about that, do you and I share the heart that Jesus has here for those who don't know him? Do you and I share that with that heart for those who are lost in their sin and in their confusion? Not condemning them, but caring for them. Not, not wanting to call down fire, but, but render kindness. Not judgment, but give them the gospel. Do we share Jesus' heart, church family, for those who don't know him? The gospel. Who Jesus is, what he has done, appropriated into a sinner's life by grace through faith. That's the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done. Do we share that heart with the people that live in our, in our village? I'm glad to tell you that John will eventually gain Jesus' heart. He doesn't have it in this moment, but he'll get it. After he watches Jesus die on the cross and, and rise from the dead, and after the Holy Spirit has come into his life and his faith has matured and deepened, we read this about him in Acts chapter 8, verse 25. It's there on your note page. When Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the who? The Samaritans. Their hearts have been changed by Jesus. May it be so for you and me. But that fire from heaven moment out of 2 Kings has an even longer reach than this. But in order to see that, we're going to all need to leave this book and head to the very last book in the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Would you join me there? Revelation chapter 11. And this is the last place I will ask you to turn. Revelation 11. The ministry of Elijah throughout his earthly life, as we have come to learn, has been one of calling, God-rejecting, idol-worshiping, hard-hearted, apostate Israel back to the Lord. That's been his ministry. That's been his work. That was the, God, the work that God gave him to do. According to the prophecy in Malachi 4, Elijah will come again, sent by a gracious God, in order to avert the complete destruction of Israel for her apostasy. In other words, Elijah will, in some way, 
be used by God in the future to successfully turn the heart of the nation, the Jewish people, back to the Lord. And it will be a real, a true, a full turning. That did not occur during his life. That didn't happen when John the Baptist came. As a matter of fact, through though John came as the forerunner of the Messiah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the nation still crucified Jesus, didn't it? Yeah, national Israel did not receive her Messiah and still hasn't. And so the Lord has a future role for Elijah to fill. Come. He'll come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Maybe your version says the great and dreadful or terrible day of the Lord. Verse 5. The day of the Lord. That defines the time of of Elijah's appearing. This expression is one of the ways the Bible describes the seven-year period that we know of as the tribulation period. The day of the Lord. That's what it's called. And the last three and a half years of the tribulation are known as the great and awesome or great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah, we are told, comes from God before that happens, before that time. Now, of course, the book of Revelation is the prophetic record of of the end times. And much of that book concerns itself with the seven-year tribulation period. In chapter 11, we're introduced to two witnesses who come on the scene at the beginning of this seven-year period and they preach for 1,260 days or for three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation. Because they are witnesses for God, we can assume their message is all about Jesus, about God's grace, about the need for repentance and faith, and it's all joined to a very clear message of coming judgment if you reject Jesus. We pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 11. And I will grant authority, God is speaking, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, who is that? That's Satan, isn't it? The beast will rise, that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So what city is this? It's Jerusalem, right? It's Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the two witnesses' home base for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And they carry out their ministry and then they are, monitored, they are martyred there and their bodies are left in the street. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. In other words, their death is going to be televised all over the world. And that certainly could happen today. 
Those who dwell on the earth, verse 10, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. In other words, the world turns the death of the two witnesses into a new Christmas. That's what happened. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. The whole world will witness this. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And we're going to stop right there. The result, church family, and this is very important, the result of the two witnesses' God-empowered ministry is that according to verse 13, the rest... Some translations say the remnant, referring to the Jewish people. The rest gave glory to the God of heaven. In other words, the turning of the hearts of the Jewish people foretold in Malachi 4 is realized. It happens. And Elijah is going to be a part of that. After this turning of the hearts of the people, the second half of the tribulation, Unfolds Three and a half years of unprecedented horror upon the earth as God unleashes his righteous wrath on all who refuse to repent and believe. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 is fulfilled. God has done what he said he will do. And although we're never told the names of the two witnesses, the signs and the miracles that they perform are so strikingly similar to the things that Elijah and Moses did during their lives that the connection between these two is, is really impossible for me not to see. And how coincidental, how coincidental that the two who stood with Jesus on the mountain were who? Elijah and Moses. Revelation 11.5 says that they call down fire on their enemies. That's exactly what Elijah did, right? And they have the power to shut up the sky so that it doesn't rain. What did Elijah do the first time we ever met him? In 1 Kings chapter 17, what does he do? He calls for a drought. How long was the drought? For three and a half years. How long do these two minister? For three and a half years. What a coincidence. The witnesses also turn water into blood and they call down plagues upon the earth as often as they desire. Both of those miracles, we saw who do that? Moses. He brought those against hard-hearted Egypt. And isn't it interesting that Egypt's name is mentioned in verse 8 as a reference to the city of Jerusalem? So for me, the, the evidence is sufficiently compelling that Elijah is one of the two witnesses. Now, some would suggest that Enoch is, is the other rather than Moses. Some say both of these witnesses are unknown and we're not going to know who they are. Uh, and I'm really okay if you land there. That's all right with me. But when I assemble all of these pieces, God's promises in Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 is faithfully and literally kept in the, purpose, in, in the person of Elijah. 
Elijah, we will see you again at the very end of the age. We're going to see you again. Your impact has been far-reaching. From the idol-worshiping, pagan unbelief of your own time 2,800 years ago to the day that you stood with Jesus on the mountain 2,000 years ago to the day yet future when you will stand in Jerusalem and you will declare the glory of God all along the way. You have been a window for us into how to do life with our God. And I'm grateful. Hopefully our time together with him over these weeks has caused us to to admire him and appreciate him as one of the Bible's really remarkable characters, for he is all of that. Remarkable for his faith, his courage, his prayer life, his his devotion to God, remarkable for his failures, and he had plenty. Remarkable for his triumphs. Yet we know, church family, as we close out his life here, we know that the last thing Elijah would want would be for us to be drawn to him as our example of how to do life. How He would quickly remind us from that moment on the mountain in Matthew 17 when that voice came thundering out of the clouds that we are to listen to who? To Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. May it be so for you and me. Grateful for Elijah, but listening to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Wow. Heavenly Father, it has been a ride. Ten weeks we have walked with your servant Elijah and learned so much from him. We're so grateful for that. More important, we are grateful that we have learned more about you, who you are, what you're like, how you love how faithful you are to your promises. We thank you. And we thank you that you do have a plan. You have a plan. We just read about that. You have a future. You have a plan for Elijah that is yet to be fulfilled. We're excited about that. That encourages us as we think about your plans for our lives as well. But more than anything else, Lord, we just want to listen to Jesus. Help us to do that well. Help us to live well for him this week before a a village that does not know you. And may we share your heart, Jesus, for those who don't know you yet, eager to introduce you to all who will listen. We love you, Lord. We truly do love you, but only because you loved us first. And all of us as God's people said, amen and amen.